Are you ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, and I'm so happy to have you join me again with my guest, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And we are going to get into it in a few minutes, but I just wanted to thank you all for listening every single week all over the world. I really appreciate the love. I appreciate you sharing. And I'm going to remind you one more time to please rate and review. I would love that so we can spread all the love, the education, the empowerment, because that's what we're here for is to educate you, empower you, and inspire you so you can live a fearlessly authentic life. And I, my guests and I always, every single week, discuss how we can make your life better. So as I said, my guest today is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm delighted to be here, Jody. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And I just wanted to give the audience some information about you before we get started and we get right into it because sure. this is a really important topic. Maybe you could sing about that afterwards now that I know you were a jingle person. <laughs> That's so cute. I'm so jealous. Like in my next life, I'm coming back as a singer. So anyway, Dr. Margaret Rutherford has been a psychologist in private practice for over 25 years and is the author of Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, which was published on November 1st, 2019, right before the pandemic, right? Exactly. Great yes. time. for and Great timing, but we need this more than ever now. In her book, Dr. Margaret bolsters her own clinical experience with real life stories of those experiencing PhD, as well as the most recent research on the dangers of perfectionism. She's passionate about the message that although depression can be heavily masked by perfectionism, its damage can be devastating to someone who may or may not be aware of the loneliness and despair that's growing more potent underneath their accomplishments. That's a big friggin' wow. <laughs> it was to me too, believe it or not, Jody. I, I really never had intended to write a book. I didn't have any aspirations to do so. I loved being a therapist. I was delighted to see people in my office. And yet one day I, I was blogging and one day I, I wrote this post. I was thinking about some people that I had seen over the years that really the thread that that bonded them together was this difficulty with expressing painful emotion. They denied it. They discounted it. They didn't even have words for it sometimes. And so I, I picked this term out of the air, perfectly hidden depression, because once I had worked with them, I realized they all had trauma in their lifetime. They all had some kind of families that were dysfunctional or had, had uh, some kind of, uh, they'd had to develop a strategy that kept their feelings really invisible. Anyway. And I picked this term perfectly hidden depression out of the air. And the post was named the perfectly hidden depressed person. Are you one? And it went viral. 
And then when it was on the Huffington Post, because I was writing for them at the time, I forgot that I left my email at the bottom of the silly thing. And I got hundreds of emails from people in 24 hours. This is me. How did you know about this? It's like you're in my head. So I decided that I needed to go look to see what was there. And of course, I found Dr. Brene Brown, but even she didn't make the the strong suggestion or the strong idea, the strong theory that perfectionism can actually mask depression and that it is there's a certain kind of perfectionism that is more and more dangerous. That's so incredible that you were able to just speak truthfully about something that you were passionately thinking about, right? Right. And blog about it. And that's when you know that something sticks, when it reaches the heart of people. You're so you're- right. You're so right. And and what happened was I, I really didn't know my what my ideas were going to be about this. I was thinking about the people I'd seen. I was uh, reading the emails that had come in. So what I did was at the bottom of every blog post that I wrote about uh, what I was beginning to try to uh, try to amass from the research that was already ongoing, both, you know, popular and academic. And I, I asked for help. I asked for volunteers. If you identify with this, would you please come and talk with me anonymously if you need to? So I had about, in about three months, I had 80 people from all over the world contact me. Yeah. And say, sure. I, I filtered out some of those people because I really didn't think they were a right, the right fit. So I did 60 interviews in about three to four month period of time. I was constantly on the phone and uh, I heard from a brain surgeon, a motivational speaker, a, um, an ad, uh, one of the people who runs the state ad agency in a, a huge state in the United States, a graduate student, mothers, dads, um, and they were all telling me this story about how, what a lonely life they had led. Many of them had attempted suicide. Some of them, actually about half of them, had gone for treatment and been misdiagnosed. Their whole, their whole presentation had been so perfectly executed that no one asked them the right questions. Well, that's making me think about when somebody goes to therapy, and I've gone to therapy with you know, significant others sure. and sometimes dragging them there. And I'm not saying that this is them, but they if they don't want the therapist to really know what's going on, they, they mask it. You know, they don't want to know. They don't want to share their feelings. Me, I, I, I blurt out everything because I'm always looking to evolve and help myself grow so I can help other people and I can be the best version of me. But I've seen it firsthand, somebody literally manipulating the conversation so the therapist doesn't see, you know, the therapist is like, there's nothing wrong with this person. You know, everything should be great. And that's the, as we would say in Arkansas, the sticky wicket of it, in that you, um, a, a, a clinician has to have this rubric in their head of, oh, there is this, there is another presentation of depression that looks much more like the perfect looking life. So let me ask a few other questions that I might not ask. For example, in fact, uh, one of the people that I interviewed gave me this very example. He took a, a 
depression inventory when he went into a psychiatrist's office. And they ask you questions like, do you feel hopeless? Do you feel helpless? And someone with perfectly hidden depression who identifies with it would say, no, 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 no. He said, if the question had been, if you ever felt hopeless, would you tell anyone? No. And if you ask that question, or I might, or whatever, you're beginning to get at what's under this presentation. It, it, I, have, um, I have thought about in the cardiology field, for example, I think a really good similar idea to this is prior to there being research on women's female symptoms of a, a pending heart attack, they were judged with the male symptoms of a potential heart attack. And many women were turned away. No, you're fine. You know, you don't have X, Y, and Z. Well, as soon as they started researching what the female potentialities for a heart attack were, they realized it's different. Mm. And, and so many women were then diagnosed with cardiovascular disease. I think this is the same thing. I think in the mental health profession, we have to understand that depression doesn't always look like melancholy or agitation or bipolar disorder. It can look like an overly perfect life that is so that the person, and, and yet, let me see, it, it is so crafted that when you begin to ask questions about the past, people will say, oh, you know, that happened a long time ago, or they start discounting, and you can hear the discounting and the, and the denial and the avoidance. And when you begin to hear that, light bulbs start to go on of, wait a minute, maybe there's some questions I should ask. Maybe I need to develop a little more trust with this person so that they can begin to let down their guard and let me in a little bit. So, which is exactly what I did with these patients that I was talking about. That's, that's incredible. And I'm so happy that you fell upon this because when I saw the book, I thought, wow, this is something that needs to be discussed that isn't discussed because it's perfectly hidden. People don't see it. We may not even see it with our loved ones that we live with or talk to all the time or friends because they know how to hide it. So let's talk about perfectionism. Mm-hmm. What is the definition of perfectionism? And before you answer that question, I remember when I was younger thinking that that was an attribute, right? Yeah. To be a perfectionist that, um, but it actually can make us crazy to think that through our whole life, we have this standard that we have to live up to. And I, I regarded myself as somewhat of a, a perfectionist. Being a firstborn, there were all of these pressures of me to perform that I felt maybe they were, they were from my parents. I'm sure they were because everything comes from our parents. But as I've grown older and wiser, I, I'm not that same person, but I could regard myself in my younger age as being that person. So what is a perfectionist? Well, you're right to call it a trait. Um, It is a a feature of our personalities. You either sort of are or you're not. But we don't want to throw perfectionism under the bus. There's certainly a a, a standard called constructive perfectionism, or it's also called adaptive perfectionism, where you really are striving for excellence because it is fulfilling to you. Right. 
because it is a process that brings you joy, that you like to learn, that you can accept mistakes, that you get up and keep on trying, that you are, you're someone who really wants to do well, wants to uh, fill out your uh, fill your own potential, and also to you just have achievements that are going to take a lot of energy to get there, and so you're you're willing to put in that kind of energy. That's constructive perfectionism, but perfectionism is on a spectrum. Okay, and so the other uh, the other uh, direction that can go, or the other the other end of the spectrum, is something called destructive perfectionism or maladaptive perfectionism. And so what that has been found by mostly academic researchers, but some wonderful research coming out of Canada and Great Britain mostly, where they have found that uh, destructive perfectionism, just like my idea about perfectly hidden depression, these are very similar, is fueled by shame and fear. Um, it is fueled by, I must do this. I, I'm, I'm hearing this voice in my head of shame that says, you know, your father told you you'd never amount to anything or who are you to think you're on Voice America talking to Jody Bauer? I mean, come on, you know? And so you have this voice inside your head and you have this fear that you're going to be found out, that you're really an imposter or that you're not as good as you think you are. And so the perfectionism is fueled by this fear and shame. So there is no fulfillment. So that's that whole that what everybody's talking about on social media and throwing, you know, it, it drives me crazy when words that are really important are thrown around so carelessly sometimes. Mm -hmm. about imposter syndrome, because that was, that's something that a lot of people talk about and a lot of people struggle with, but Mm -hmm. it sounds like it's the same thing that you're talking about it, that it's that, that part's not good for you. That's, that's not a good thing because we fear that we're not that person, but we're trying to be that perfect person then we feel the shame when we don't live up to those expectations. It's certainly tied in with it for sure. There's been some interesting research coming out of Harvard about imposter syndrome, and I don't want to necessarily go on that tangent, but they are pointing out that, you know, it's imposter syndrome is mostly talked about as a female issue, as a women's issue. And actually, when you look at a lot of the microaggressions in the workplace and that kind of thing, that what has been deemed imposter syndrome was actually a normal response to some of the um, sexism and that kind of thing that you can find in the workplace. It's not as abnormal as we might think. Interesting little yeah, that is, about That is interesting. Syndrome. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, in comparing the two perfectionists, perfectionism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that the healthy perfectionism, the mm-hmm. healthy perfectionist mm-hmm. is an overachiever or would you say that they're both overachievers? One is doing it oh. to a detriment and one is doing it in a healthy manner. Well, that's probably an individual issue. I mean, I would hate to say that all perfectionists are also equitable with overachievers. Okay. Because when we think, I, I when I think of overachiever, it tends to have a, a. Um, a facet to it that is maybe not not uh, not attractive. You're overachieving. You're trying too hard. You're you're constantly thinking about accomplishment. I if I was going to assign it to one or the other that word, I would probably assign it to destructive perfectionism because when I think of overachieving, uh, I think of that person who. Um, 
you know, when they add something to their plate, they don't take anything off. They have to keep all the the balls up in the air all the time. And so, yeah. Sounds like me. Yeah. In fact, when I have a patient in front of me and I say, so, you know, they say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take this new opportunity. I'm going to start this new hobby or I'm going to start a new job. I said, so what are you going to stop? And they just kind of look at me incredulously, like, what do you mean? Stop. (laughs) Right. Right. So So, I want to make another point about destructive perfectionism because in the academic research, it's really been shown that the more you need to meet the expectations of others in order for you to feel good about yourself Mm -hmm. or that moment of fulfillment, that you're constantly accomplishment oriented, that that is actually leading to suicidality. That because think about that, it's like you're on a treadmill that you can't control the speed or, or the, uh, or the, what's what I'm looking for? Um, the incline. The incline. Thank you. Long time since I've been on a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to the gym in forever because of COVID. But um, anyway, so you don't have any, you have no control over that and just keeps going higher and faster and higher and faster. And so you have to, it, it, it you you're constantly you're just hyper vigilant and pressured and so that has led it's called socially prescribed perfectionism and it is it can be very very dangerous it sounds like the gerbil wheel that so many of us try to stay right. on in life and i i just actually talked about that is you know we need to find that balance in life and i know that simplifying things tremendously but that gerbil wheel that that a lot of the perfectionists feel that they have to stay on, yes, it could be very dangerous. I see it with a lot of people, and I've even noticed it in myself. Like, slow down, Jody. Like, you don't need to do everything. And I really, you know, and I, for myself, I try to pull it back a lot. Um, so, in the perfectionism, then we've got the perfectionist, and then who is going to easily mask because they know how to do a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Their depression. So, how do you, let's let's define what depression is. There's all different types of depression. If you want to go down that route, because I'd like to explain that to everybody who's listening. You know, you've got perfectionism, you've got depression. How do you how do you know that that's somebody who's hiding perfectly that depression? Well, I it I to answer your first question about what is depression. It's a a fairly complex, actually, mental illness because it does look a lot of different ways. It can look like melancholy. It can look like agitation, as I said before. It can look like anger. Uh, But it is, at least diagnostically, you have to have two things present for it to be uh, diagnosed. One is a noticeable depressed mood that is a change from prior functioning for the person. So either the person notices it or people around them notice it. And it has to last for a certain period of time, dependent on the different diagnoses. But the second thing is you have to have what's called anhedonia. And what that is, Jody, is that it is a lack of pleasure in previously pleasurable activities. Meaning, I used to love to work out and I don't work out anymore, meaning I used to love to sing and I don't sing anymore. It's just whatever happens to be the thing that you found a lot of passion in or a lot of joy in, a lot of contentment within, you don't do that anymore. You just don't want to. You don't have the energy. And there's three components of depression. There's a mental 
form of uh, depression, meaning you have foggy thinking and indecisiveness or whatever. Uh, you can feel like you're walking around or trying to think yourself through a um, fog. You can have um, the emotional parts of depression, which are hopelessness, helplessness, sad. Um, but you can also have the physical aspects of depression, which is fatigue um, and just feeling that you can gain weight, lose weight, want to, you know, never eat, be sleepy all the time, not sleep at all. So there, it's really, and actually it's, there's exciting research going on right now about depression that your gut seems to have a lot to do with depression. And so that's really exciting, but that's for another day. The thing that um, I think that is potently obvious there is that if one of these people walks into a clinician's office and they are using those classic criteria to diagnose depression, they won't. In fact, there was a wonderful article in The Guardian about six weeks ago written by a psychiatrist that says, if, if depression wears a smile, even psychiatrists will miss it. So how, so, okay, so how do you catch it? How do you catch okay. it? Because one, you're aware that there is a different presentation. You add that to your list of possible presentations of depression. And two, you ask questions about, uh, about trauma, about sadness, about anger, about fear, and you will see these folks not be able to answer your question. They may not even have the language to answer your question. They are so accustomed to rigidly compartmentalizing that, pushing it away, stuffing it away, perhaps even unconsciously. In fact, often unconsciously, it has become such a pattern that and they're was, not even aware that they're doing it. Right. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you is that they don't even, that's what I read in your book is that they don't even realize they are doing mm -hmm. this anymore because it's become so habitual. It is right. a way of living. It is, you know. It, it was a, um, a strategy. The, the whole perfectly hidden depression idea is really built on the idea, on the ideology or the beginning of it is really in your childhood when you perhaps were in a family where you were scorned for being sad or you were told to go to your room if you were angry, you know, come out when you can be nice, or you were in a culture where you couldn't let any of that show. I've had African-American clients tell me I had to look perfect or I wouldn't even, I would be totally looked over because of a racism. Um, so it can be your culture. Uh, there are cultures who think that, and regions of the country here in the United States that think that, you know, if you talk about being sad or any of those darker emotions, that that's weakness. Depression is weakness. And so it could be a cultural thing. Then there are also things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, emotional abuse that can obviously set up a situation where a child is going through something absolutely awful, but somehow has to emotionally survive. So they begin to compartmentalize the, these bad things that are happening to them. They, they, whatever they're feeling about it, they can't let that show. Um, and so, and they learn perhaps that, let's take another situation where their parents are alcoholics. Well, they have to keep that a secret. Right. So 
a child will develop a strategy to, to keep cope. them emotionally safe, to cope, to right? Cope. And often in now these various uh, scenarios that we've discussed, that strategy is to, to just push away feelings of sadness, loneliness, despair, fear, anger, and to succeed, to become very successful, to become very task-oriented, to become the child in the family that takes care of all the other siblings, to become the child that's responsible, to become the child that, you know, is always making good choices. And you you use that strategy and it gets you through. Right. 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 It gets and you so, through life. Yep. Yes, it gets you through. What happens though is when you carry it into adulthood and you're and then you and you're just missing so much of the depth of life and the potentials, emotional potentials of life. You know, it was very interesting to me that all those volunteers, um, I asked them, one, why would you buy a book called Perfectly Hidden Depression if you're hiding? <laughs> because that's what the publishers wanted to know. And two, why are you reaching out to me? Mm. To the first question, they said, when I saw the term perfectly hidden depression, just like those people who wrote me at HuffPost, I knew you were onto something. You had figured me out. Wow. And even though I really, it sort of, it, it was my gut that responded. It maybe not, maybe even wasn't my brain, but my gut said, pay attention to this. And I wanted to reach out to you. Um, to The answer to the second question was, um, I reached out because I've been so lonely. You mentioned been, that at the beginning. I have had loneliness. so such extreme loneliness, and I am in fear of being found out, fear of someone recognizing how vulnerable I truly am. That scares me to death, and I don't want anyone else to live this life. No yeah. one. It must have been very emotional for you to get very. all of these people needing your help, but so grateful that they were reaching out and that you could help them. There was one woman that, uh, to answer your question, that, that immediately came to mind. And she had been sort of clipping along and, you know, being fairly jovial and telling me about her life. And I said something toward the end of the interview that I was getting turned down by publishers because I'm a, a therapist in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and no one knows who I am. I'm not in L.A. or New York. And they would say, sorry, no one knows who you are. We're not going to publish your book. And she got really quiet. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, and she started crying. I mean, not like boohooing, but right. you could tell there was emotion in her voice. And she said, please don't give up. This message is so important. And I was just, um, I said, I won't. And I had, I've had other experiences back in May. So gosh, now it'll be a year ago. Two women from Florida reached out to me. This was not the first time this happened. This is probably the most dramatic. I know it's the most dramatic. And one of them's very good friend had killed herself, much to everyone's amazement. And she had three children, very successful, great community leader, seemed like a wonderful marriage. And at the funeral, the woman's husband came up to the woman who then introduced herself to me, and she had he had found my book on her nightstand. Wow. 
We are, that's so powerful. That's so, so powerful. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break right now. When we come back, we're going to get into how people could help themselves and how people can help other people that are suffering from perfectly hidden depression. So we'll be back in a few minutes, everybody. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. On Fearlessly Authentic, Jody talks about mental and physical well-being, and the key to both starts with proper nutrition. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan was created to help your body feel better. Whether your goal is to lose weight, gain muscle, or just feel lighter and more energetic, following this meal plan can help you get there. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a 21-day plan to help you learn the most important things about the food we eat and what foods are right for you based on your goals and activity level. The Jody Fit Jumpstart Meal Plan is a real plan for real life. This is not a diet, but a change in lifestyle. The plan is simple and easy for you to follow. In the 21-day plan, you will receive meal ideas, snack ideas, a grocery list, and a 21-day journal crucial to your success with inspirational quotes to keep you motivated and keep track of your progress. The key to success is commitment, consistency, and willpower. Be fearless and trust the journey. Go to JodyFit.com to purchase the JodyFit meal plan now and use the promo code PODCAST to get 25% off. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
You are listening to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you may have. Send an email to info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. That's info at jodyharrisonbauer.com. Now, back to Fearlessly Authentic. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm with Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and we are talking about perfectly hidden depression. And we're going to go over the characteristics of perfectly hidden depression um, and what it looks like. So, Margaret, do you want to go through them? And, you know, this will really help other people identify this. Sure. You know, the reason why I came up with this syndrome, because that's what it is, a syndrome that's basically made up of behaviors and beliefs that you're going to find together, kind of like salt and pepper, because a lot of perfectionists will say, oh, I'm I'm not a perfectionist. I never do anything perfectly. When really, that's not the criteria they need to use at all to treat to see if they identify perfectly in depression. So there are ten of them, and I'll go through them quickly. Okay. We've really talked about the first one. You're highly perfectionistic, and you have a constant critical, shaming inner voice. The second is you demonstrate a heightened or excessive sense of responsibility. You've always got your hand up in the air. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. You detach from painful emotions by staying in your head and actually shutting them off. That's basically a way of saying compartmentalization, right? Mm -hmm. So you like to be analytical. You much rather talk about what you think about something than how you feel about something. Oh, interesting. You're a worrier. Okay, here's number four. You're a worrier, but you don't really want anyone to know you worry. So you just have an extreme need for control and your environment. You control yourself and your environment. And of course, that leads to more responsibility, which leads to more resentment or, you know, fatigue, which needs you being, you know, having to hide that and then you worry about it. So it's a huge cycle. Uh, We've already talked about this too. You intensely focus on tasks using accomplishment to feel valuable. This is one we have not talked about. You focus on the well-being of others, and this is sincere. You're a really good friend, but you don't allow anyone into your own inner world. I know people like that. Ah, uh, yeah. They'll say, you, you'll go, you know, your your friend left or your friend, you know, and, and I've never seen you look upset about it. And they'll say something like, oh, you know, I'm just not a crier. Or if I started crying, I'd never stop. I wish I had a quarter for every time someone had said that to me. <laughs> uh, because basically what you're doing is avoiding, you're expressing your sadness. The research shows, this is so interesting, research shows that perfectionists can describe their emotions. They just can't connect with them. Explain that. Go deeper into that. Okay. What I mean by that is, and this is the destructive perfectionism again. People can say, yes, my mother-in-law got cancer, has cancer, and we're really, we're really worried about it. And we're really sad about it. It's not that they go, oh, well, she got cancer. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sad about it. But then when you talk about it, that you never see them sad. They never express it. They never connect with it. They're busy about doing the tasks that are involved in helping your mother-in-law who has cancer now, but they don't ever connect. It's like if you, it's the person that you go to the funeral and someone close to them and, and they're not crying. Now, that's not always the case. There can be many reasons for that, but they, they don't express they, or they, 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 they don't feel they don't want to feel. 
Okay. I don't want to feel. Is feel it because it brings them. back trauma from their childhood? Exactly. You open that can of worms and, you know, it's like I've often said, and this is kind of a, just a common sense kind of example, but it's kind of like if you have a, a sack of garbage that's been tied up in your, I don't know, in your backyard or somewhere for a long time, and you finally open it up, pow, here come all these horrible smells and odors, and it's overpowering. Well, that's what can happen, and and they are very afraid of that happening, so they don't want to open all of that up. I know I want you to finish this, but I was just thinking in my head when you were saying this, I'd like to get back to it, so I'm going to write it down, about relationships, how that affects you in relationships. You got it. You got okay. it. In fact, that's the last one. Okay. Okay. Just get there. Um, they discount again. Uh, they they discount personal hurt or sorrow and struggle with self compassion, and that can be from the past. Uh, there was this man, for example, who was telling me that his mother used to throw rocks at him and scream at him what a louse he was and how he was never going to amount to anything, and he was just laughing, laughing, laughing. And I looked at him and I said, "Don't you have a son?" He said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, let's go get him to stand in the front yard and you, you and me get some rocks and throw them at them, throw them at him. And then, you know, and he got this look on his face. He goes, well, what? I'd never do that. I said, well, why? Because it would hurt him. It might hurt him physically, but it would hurt him emotionally. I said, so why are you laughing? You know, you wouldn't laugh at your son, but you're laughing at yourself. You have you have so compartmentalized those feelings that you're not allowing yourself to connect with them. Yes. You discount them. Mm-hmm. Okay, the night the uh, this other one is something else we haven't talked about. You strongly believe in counting your blessings and that is the foundation of your well-being, meaning that I these find are that people, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are people who if I say, well, you know, the glass is half full and half empty at the same time, by definition, they say, oh, oh, but I have so many blessings in my life. I just don't want to spend any time thinking about something that's unpleasant or that makes me sad or, or you know what? I just, I've just, you know, people of faith often struggle with this. You know, I, I pray about the things that bother me and I let them go. It's as if you can't talk about the underbellies of blessings um, you have a, a very popular radio show. You are very active in your community, and I'm sure that's something you love and you've worked hard for and you have incredible pride in and you're very accomplished and you're well-known, and you get tired. <laughs> and sometimes you don't want to look gorgeous like you do right now or, or you, you know, you think, oh, one more. And so, you know, every. Thing that you're grateful for has an underbelly. Yes. And so that's so important to be able to talk about. The next one is may enjoy success. In fact, usually does enjoy prof- success within a professional structure. The only time this doesn't happen is when the perfectionist really racked by procrastination, which is a perfectionistic trait, goes along with it. And I've had some people contact me who said, well, I almost said I identified with this, except I'm not all that successful because I doubt myself so much. So that may be, we may be talking about, talking about two different animals, but, mm-hmm. but you struggle with emotional intimacy. So to get Ooh. to your relationship okay. issue, these people will be attracted to, uh, well, and sadly, three kinds of people. Someone else who avoids 
conflict, someone else who avoids any kind of pain because they also are very happy with a superficial kind of existence. Someone who is a narcissist or has narcissistic traits who wants someone who's an overfunctioner and who takes the blame all the time. So that they'll say, well, yeah, you're at fault. Oh, I know I, I, I do this. Well, I'll work harder. They want that, you know, over-functioner in their life so they can under-function. Uh, this is put this very is, simply. This is f- fascinating. I, yeah. I mean, this is, the, yes, go ahead. There's- so, and then I sort of uh, repeated myself that then there's the people who don't take responsibility for anything and they're going to want someone who takes a lot of responsibility. Now, if this person is lucky they will have met someone who just really loves them. And because I've gotten emails from people that have said, I think this is my wife, or I think this is my husband, because I feel like every time I try to talk to them about something that's really deeper, they get very uncomfortable, or they look off, or they avoid the conversation. And and how do I approach them about this? And I'll say, well, just like you did me, you approach them and you say, you know, I feel I've been married to you for 12 years and I still don't feel like I know you. Are, have you ever thought about that? And so um, if, if they're lucky, that's the person they will have attracted. I remember a woman I worked with who, boy, had she been in control of her relationship in her life. I mean, she was the boss and uh, her husband, who she loved a lot and who loved her. Um, it, it, this got into their sexual relationship too, unfortunately. But uh, so they didn't have a lot of sexual intimacy that was um, meaningful. But when she began changing, and she worked very hard, and she began risking more and telling her husband when she was sad or afraid or angry or whatever, he looked at her and he got huge tears in his eyes. He said, I've been waiting for so long to get to know you, to really get to know you. Because she was finally being vulnerable. Exactly. And she, wasn't, and she wasn't going around saying, but I'm so blessed and everything is so great. And, right. you know, nothing's wrong. I, I this, mean, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but I, I, but I know a lot of people who do that. And you're This like, woman had had... I, you wouldn't believe the amount of miscarriages she'd had. And they'd had two abortions, not abortions. They'd had two adoptions go through. They thought they were going to go through and they had failed. They finally, and she was like bright Miss Sunshine through the whole thing. I'm going to get it next time. We'll get it next time. We'll get it next time where he was a mess. And then they adopted a child. And what happened was all those feelings in her love for this child that she was now lucky enough to have. She realized all, and that's why she came into therapy. I don't know what's wrong. I have this child. I finally have this blessing (laughs) and I can't be happy about it. What's wrong with me? Sometimes it takes that, right? Sometimes it takes something like that. The last point I want to make, and this is not really a trait. I had to put this in there because my... I try to be an ethical clinician, and I don't want people to say, oh, I have perfectly hidden depression, and so that's what's wrong with me, because you could actually have another disorder going on. You could be, you know, you could have an anxiety disorder, you could have OCD, you could have an eating disorder, a lot of, you could have a substance abuse issue, a lot of things that have to do with control. In fact, for the people that have come in to see me, all, all of them have come in for one of those reasons. 
you know, thinking, I, that's, I, thinking that's what it was, but maybe they were using that to mask it. Exactly. 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 Um, so I had a question for you before we took the break. Do you find that it is more prevalent in women versus men? I've had that question before. And of course, I'm not a researcher. Mm -hmm. So, and I would love for someone, if anyone's listening who wants to do some research on perfectly hidden depression, I will, I will partner myself with you for sure. But I, um, so I can't answer that really in my own practice. uh, I mean, I've had lots of people come to me for this. Um, I would say that's probably you know, two thirds women, a third men, but that's also about the ratio of my real practice. About right. two thirds of it is women, and a third of it is men. So, um, I, th- the men that have come to me are are very moved by this, um, and realize that um, they have been. Um, that their paths are still, or their paths, their pasts are still governing them to the to a much greater extent than they thought, mm. and that many of them are living out lives that they don't even know why, what is motivating them to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it is a huge aha moment, uh, but for many women too, and and I will say this too because I I don't I don't want to sound like I'm um, being theatrical. Mm-hmm. But suicide rates are going up exponentially internationally. And as the perfectionism researchers will tell you, uh, that as suicide rates are going up, so are perfectionism rates. And that there is a correlate there that is very, um, very threatening. And as our social media culture and our culture worships, um, you know, looking a certain way and being a certain way and having the right kind of social media and all that thing, you know, there are a lot of people that are very, very, very concerned about this, um, all of this perfectionistic trend. Right. Yeah, I've heard that. I think it's been going on for a while. People are always comparing themselves and so on. Um, Not to say that's a but, but I do want to talk about how do we fix this? Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story quickly. Um, I I really thought the book was about, I was going to describe this thing and that would be it. And the last publishing company who luckily bought it said, well, uh, we think that's a good idea, but we need a healing strategy and you've got two weeks. (laughs) I said, oh, two weeks. All right. There we go. That's plenty of time. Yeah. So I really sat down and thought, what do I do with everybody? I've been a clinician for years and I just took that, um, that uh, uh, model and 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 put it on to perfectionism, sort of placed it on on top of perfectionism. Basically, the first stage is consciousness. You have to be aware that your perfectionism is a problem, and you have to be aware of how much it is affecting your life. So you can use a lot of mindfulness techniques for that, like um, like meditating. Like meditating or like just being aware of what your self-talk is Mm -hmm. and how frequently you are holding yourself up to an impossible standard. And until you recognize that, then, and and you actually think, oh, I had a woman say, I can't let it go because I'll lose my job. I mean, 
there is such fear in beginning to try to commit to this. Uh, that is the second stage is commitment. And a lot of times people with perfectionism will come in and infect somebody and say, well, I've been to six sessions and I thought it would be done. I'd be done by now. Oh, it's like when people come to me to lose weight and get in shape. They're like, well, wait a minute. I thought after four weeks I was going to look like, you know, this person. I'm like, yes, exactly. Yeah, no, it doesn't, no, doesn't happen overnight. It takes a little bit yeah. longer than that. Right. And so the other thing is they'll start with something way too hard. You know, I'll say, I want you to start very small. And they come in, they tell me this huge thing they tried to do. And they said, I couldn't do it. I don't know. And now I'm hopeless. So, so you have to take really uh, baby steps. The third stage is confrontation, which is um, a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy kind of uh, stance, where you really want to look at some of these rules that you made for yourself and the beliefs that um, govern those rules that, that helped you devise that strategy. And um, you really want to look at the musts, the shoulds, the ought tos, the have tos, the must always, the nevers in your life and ask yourself, are those serving me well or are they not serving me well? Are they keeping this need to look perfect uh, to everyone else in place? The fourth stage, I'm going through these very quickly. The fourth stage is um, a very difficult stage because it is about learning how to connect with your emotions. Now, I will say vehemently that if you have severe trauma in your life, you should not do this piece of the work by yourself. Mm -hmm. Because I promise you, those feelings can be extremely overwhelming. And um, I've watched it. I've done trauma work for years, and it is very uh, complicated work. And yet, I don't want to make it sound like it's um, something that can't be done. You just have to do it carefully and cautiously. And you need to be guided with somebody who is experienced in doing this. Because sometimes when you do go into depth in fixing yourself to simplify it, there are parts of it that are so emotional that you may not right. want to go there, right. you know, um, and it's hard unless you have somebody holding your hand along this journey. Yeah. And it, it, so there are lots of warnings about that in the book. Now, and the book I should say is also has over 60 exercises in it. So it's not that I'm shying away from, in fact, the exercises are very important to do because they are the emotional part. Right. They are the part where you're beginning to crack open that shell that you have kept, you know, wound around yourself or you've kept kind of like a turtle, you know, you've, you've made sure you have it and then you disappear into it. So, you know, we're cracking that open a little bit and and it hopefully takes you through some very safe steps in order to do that. But if you have, you know, severe sexual abuse or really any sexual abuse or something like that in your in your history, then this this step needs uh, guidance. But that's what you're doing. You're going back to acknowledge Mm -hmm. the things that happened in your life that were either good and really wonderful and helped you feel uh, very fulfilled and good about yourself, but also about the things that were hurtful. And what happens is, and then you go back, you acknowledge them, and then you are very self-compassionate, just like we did with with the man that was laughing about the rocks being thrown at him. I I think you want to... From, I'm sorry, for every, everything that you're saying, it sounds like the a, a big trait of somebody who's like this is the fact that they cannot speak compassionately right. to themselves. Exactly. That they don't have compassion for themselves, that they almost might have 
hatred for themselves, which is That's why right. they've compartmentalized it and put on this happy shame. Front, they have lots right? of shame, shame about themselves. The shame, shame. Exactly. And then uh, quickly, the last one is, I'm, I'm a huge believer that you get hope from behavior change, mm-hmm. not just from insight. So we want to change your behaviors. And so we look at those 10 traits and we suggest ways to really confront those. Now that is a, um, you know, quick and dirty uh, explanation of everything. Um, this is hard work, but I will tell you that just this past year, I've had three people tell me that when they entered my office, they had a plan to die, to kill themselves, and that it is the work that really helped them. Obviously, they don't feel that way anymore, and they did not tell me that when they walked in the door either. So, um, you know, I have... Um, as I said at the very beginning, I've never really wanted to write a book, but I have been determined that this psychologist from Arkansas <laughs> was going to get this message out, and I cannot thank you enough for helping me do that. No, I, I've learned so much, and when I think about the, my loved ones and friends and family, like we were talking about during the break, you know, identifying them and seeing that, does this person have this trait or just, you know, as I was reading everything, I would think about somebody who maybe mm-hmm. tried to, people in my past who just put up this happy front and you could see if if you, if you're aware of your feelings, you can see the pain behind them. That's right. Somebody is suffering from the things that we're talking about, how besides getting your book and the name of the book is called Perfectly Hidden Depression. And they could start by, by working on the handbook, the information on there. But if they need to reach out to you, maybe you can help them. I don't know if you do Zoom calls or if you, how you take on clients or patients. How do they get in touch with you, Margaret? Well, my website's drmargaretrutherford.com, and there is a contact. Uh, in, there's contact information there. My email, I might as well give it out. I gave yes, it out please. on the post. Yes, yes. It's askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I can act to guide you, but I will tell you this, Jody. Really, I think the first step is to pick a trusted friend or a therapist mm-hmm. and to sit down with them. And, and this is where you start. All you say is, I'm really not who I want all of you to think I am Mm. and that I work very hard to make you think I am. And that friend may lean forward and say, what do you mean? You go, I'm not ready to talk about that yet, but I had to get those words out of my mouth Mm. that you start where you are. You know, the antidote to perfectly hidden depression, I believe is self-acceptance, knowing that your strengths don't define you any more than your vulnerabilities and your vulnerabilities don't define you any more than your strengths, that you can let your vulnerabilities be revealed and that will actually give you more power in your lifetime. Well, with that said, I do have to ask you before we finish the show, um, with everything that we've talked about, what does living a fearlessly authentic life mean to you? Oh my goodness. Well, I think I just said it. <laughs> That's what I think too. Yeah. I think I think if if I had to wrap this up, I would say, you know, I am a person who I have many vulnerabilities and I try to be very transparent about them and I've made large mistakes in the past that I've had shame about and yet I also have strengths and I think those are facts about me. 
Uh, I've hopefully used the shame about the the weaknesses or the mistakes that I've made to help me um, grow and change and learn. And um, I think um, fearlessly authentic people are self-accepting people. I love that. I agree. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Margaret Rutherford, the hidden, perfectly hidden depression. Here you go, everybody. Grab this book. You will learn so much. Thank you so, so much for being on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you. 